Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week, I went to the National Honey Show. Jane couldn't join us because she's driving around in an ambulance somewhere while she's filming Bloods. It was very exciting and held at Epsom Racecourse. No horses, but a large congregation of beekeepers showing off their wares to be judged in many different competitions. And so we went in to explore. All right then. Long hot days in the shade of some big old tree. Making daisy chains and watching all the honeybees. Oh, we've just walked into the, the hall and there's lots of honey things. I can first of all see some brood boxes and wax foundation. I can see some crafts, some bee crafts, and it smells overwhelmingly of wax. Oh, my favourite smell! <laughs> My name is Bob Mora and I'm the chairman of the National Honey Show. We're so excited to be here. Good. Well, we're delighted to have you. Thank yeah. you for coming. And, yes. um, how are you feeling? Oh, ecstatic because we've, you know, we couldn't do it last year. We had to yeah. do a virtual show. So this is, is, is wonderful to be, actually have people back on the ground. So it's really, really great. What are you looking forward to today? Oh, gosh, so much. We have uh, lectures going on, fantastic speakers from all over the world, albeit uh, electronically, yeah. some in the room and some electronically. We've got uh, this fantastic trade show that's just opened and in a few hours the judging will have finished over there and you'll see the best examples of, of honey and wax anywhere in the world. It's a stunning show. Well, shall we have a peek through the window and look at all the, the judges? It, it looks like a sort of big chemical experiment with all those jars of honey. Are we allowed to look through the window? You can look through the window. Come on, then. Oh, it's like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, isn't it, but with honey? There's like loads of bottles of, it must be mead. I can see lots of jars of honey. There's people with torches looking at the honey to see what's inside the jars and how clear it is. Everybody's in sort of white coats and white hats. And I'm sure Willy Wonka must be there somewhere. My name is Paul Boyle. I am an Irish honey judge. And I come from a place called Dundalk, which is on the east coast of Ireland, equidistant between Dundalk and Dublin and Belfast. What's going on? So she would, but we are actually judging honey. <laughs> and we're all Willy Wonkers. Because <laughs> you have to be a bit strange to be a honey judge. But we have a sequence to the judging. So basically we look at the honey that's on the shelf first and we make sure that everything is matching pairs. And then you'll see some of most of my colleagues have stopped using their torches now, so they're actually flavouring. But what you do is you take it off the shelf and then you look at it for falls with your torch so everybody's a winner at the start yeah. but then you have to look for falls and knock them down as you go down so when you're with the torch you're looking for like bees wings and bees yes, legs well, well that's the, at this stage at this, at this level shouldn't be any bees wings or bees wax <laughs> there might be wax true but yeah. you should have bought some filters first but we're looking for foreign bodies basically inside it which would be little, little flecks of straining cloths 
cats' hairs, dogs' hairs if you have pets. Keep the pets outside. Human, I found an eyebrow in one of them. Not an eyelash, but an eyebrow. So they're that small, you can find. So we're watching for that. So that's, that's the level we're looking at. So we're trying to eliminate everybody else. And then do you move it onto a different department to taste it? Or is what that happens your then is we, we put them on the bottom. So you could have... We, at the moment, I have 20 in the class. So I'm after going through all the class looking for faults. So out of the 20, I have three that have no faults. So now the first thing I'll do is I will open the lid, I'll get the aroma. So then I'll actually get, I'll grade them on aroma. And then after aroma, I will open the lid properly. And then I will actually grade to see if there's any faults on top of the, we would call it scum or it's bubbles and stuff that can rise to the top. You should have, as a competitor, you should have that all taken off. Then we look at the viscosity and then we do flavour. So there is a sequence to, and I'm an Irish honey judge, but the UK, we all run the same sequence. Scottish, Irish, English honey judges all run the same sequence. So, but you know, what if you have got a type of honey that you absolutely love, like so? So how do you not like it's go to the subjective? You have to realise that you might pick up something and you mightn't like it, but you still have to judge it because whoever put that in has still put in hours of work and hours of preparation. So you still have to say, well, look at it objectively. Like it's just just because you might drive an orange car and I want to drive a blue car. It doesn't matter. It's still a car. Or if somebody makes something, so it's like the artistic stuff. Some of the stuff is really, really good, but you might want it in your house or everything else. But you have to accept that people put loads of time into these things, so you have to look at them objectively and say, "Okay, put a lot of work in that. Let's give a prize." So, well, thank you for talking yeah. to us. You're quite welcome. Good luck in the Willy Wonka chocolate. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, and back to me, Willy Today we get all sorts of luminaries coming and my, uh, I could introduce you now to Anthony Bickmore who is the master of the Worshipful Company of Wax Chandlers. Oh, uh, so what's that you ask? Before Anthony explains, I should just say that they have been the most fantastic sponsors of this show for, I think this is your 28th year, uh, so they are, they are a very important part of our show and very important part of beekeeping, Anthony. So we're a city livery company, so we were formed about the trades in the city, and our trade was beeswax. So therefore we've got a natural knowledge and interest in beeswax and bees and the health of bees, and therefore the wider environment. So how is that reflected now? Uh, as a, you know, We're a small city livery company. We come to mark our 650th anniversary of the formal ordinances being granted to us on the 14th of November, 1371. So we're able to have a celebration as we do that. But we run apprenticeship schemes, so we're supporting training with bee farmers somewhere down there, and we've got five people who've graduated off that this year. We've got three who've won distinction and one who've won credits, so, you know, well, everybody's passed, and they've you know, done that with example. But it puts people into the beekeeping industry with a proper qualification, so that's good. Uh, we sponsor the National Honey Show. We're also looking at a project which we call Pollinating London Together. With we have initiated this, and we're trying to develop that with other livery companies to explain and get people to think about the importance of but decline of pollinators and that we need to do something about it because pollinators are responsible for about a third of what we eat. So you know, this is an important piece, but it's somehow 
this point about biodiversity seems to have got lost in some of the mix, or it's not as well publicised as it might be. And so we're trying to give it the oxygen of publicity so it becomes a more focused thing and people realise that they can do something about it. It might be a window box, it might be leaving a part of the garden to grow naturally, it might be thinking about some of the spaces in the city of London or other cities where instead of planting privet, we could plant maybe lavenders and therefore we can provide the food to encourage pollinators of a range of things to do that. So we're in our first year, we've done audits of a number of gardens in the city, including the audit of that modest space called St Paul's Cathedral, so we're doing that. And we're also trying to work with, in, in a better way, the Superbloom thing, which is going to be a celebration of the Tower of London to mark Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee by filling the moats of the Tower of London with flowers, again, to, to get them with flowers and encourage the pollinators. So that's part of that. The importance of that is not just because it's a London-centric piece, but you can take the science of that and the aim is to take it out to, which historic royal palaces do, is to take it out to a couple of hundred schools across the country, where it's the botany, the biology, the science and the history and all those other bits and pieces which can be taught in, in tandem with it. So, you know, that's what we're, what we're doing as, as a livery company. And the other bit about our history, which is just extraordinary, is that on this street corner where we're based in the City of London, we have been the consistent owners and occupiers of that same street corner since before Columbus set sail for America in 1492. Yes, we've had a number of different halls. There's been the Fire of London and there's been the war and things like that. But we've consistently owned and occupied that, that corner for over 500 years. from the honey show it's very very exciting you know well, i'm hoping that bob's going to present me with one for being having a wonderful podcast <laughs> well we'll certainly present you with a good view of them i can tell you that wow so this is just some of them oh my goodness what will happen is tomorrow yeah. an engraver will come in here with all his kit and all the winners will be engraved on these trophies. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, on Saturday, we'll have a prize giving and all of these will be presented to, to the winners in that room with their name on it. And will all these cups be full of mead when you present them? <laughs> or honey? They will only be empty this time around, I'm afraid. But, but uh, I suspect quite a few of them will get filled with mead afterwards. <laughs> I started beekeeping 20-something years ago as a sort of antidote to rushing into the city of London every day. When you get into this sort of voluntary area, if you're at work, you pitch for something and you get 10% of what you're after, but anything you volunteer for, you get 110% of. So for my sins, uh, I've been chairman of this show for oh, 10 years now, I think it is, I'm also chairman of Beecraft magazine, which you yeah, met earlier. I'm chairman of Surrey Beekeepers Association and, uh, and a few other things, which keeps me a little busy. What do you always sort of think, oh, gosh, I hope that one wins, or, 
are you allowed to say that? I can tell you what I like. Uh, I mean, I, I normally myself, uh, my bees produce a crop at the uh, end of summer, mm-hmm. uh, which is a sort of multi-floral, and it's, it's very nice. But last year, because we had such an early spring... Mm-hmm. My bees work really hard and they produced enough honey for me to take a crop in in spring, which I don't normally do. And it produced a really nice nutty flavour. I think it's probably hawthorn honey, Mm. which I was really proud of. And it actually, it isn't here because I feel I probably shouldn't be entering this show as chairman, but it won uh, a a local show just a few weeks ago, so I was very proud of that. Did you get the Hawthorne cop for that? I shouldn't. shouldn't, uh, Yes. Well, the first show that we had was at Crystal Palace in 1923. As you know, Crystal Palace burnt down, and we had all our show kit there. And that was all destroyed, and we weren't insured. Uh, so we were hanging on by the skin of our teeth, but we had some good sponsors who helped us out, and, so, and as you can see, we are in rude health now. But one of the things that we were given by the Crystal Palace team was this beautiful cup, which uh, is one of our, our major awards now. Uh, so if you were going to give Queen Bee's podcast a cup, which one would you choose for us? Well, do you know, the one I think is, is very beautiful is the thistle cup. Oh, that is beautiful. Don't you think that's lovely? Yeah. The beautiful <laughs> silver thistle with the, the uh, leaves here underneath and uh, the, a bud forming. And, uh, it's, I think that's just a, a glorious... Uh, it really is, and so appropriate for the bees as well, exactly isn't it? Exactly that. Thank you for that trophy, Bob. That's um, We're really proud and Good. we're so glad that you presented it with us well, today. Bostock and I'm a senior horticultural advisor at the RHS based at Wisley in Surrey. We'd love to ask you about your store. It looks so beautiful with all these flowers. Can you tell us what you're doing here today? Yeah, so it's fantastic to be up at the Honey Show today. So we have a stand really showcasing the things that bees and wild pollinators can help in producing so we brought some of our lovely fruit we've just had our taste of autumn festival at Wisley where all our lovely apple trees and we've also brought a selection of real pollinator friendly plants as well along to the show just to try and help you know inform people about okay honeybees are wonderful we're very much about celebrating them but we've got an awful lot of wild bees as well that we want to really help so yeah that's what our stand's all about um, would you be able to just tell us the flowers that you've actually got here that you recommend yeah, yeah. So, so we do have a list of what's called the RHS plants for pollinators, which people can download from the RHS website. So if they want to have a have a look, this is hemp agrimony. So this is one of our native wildflowers, really good for maybe a slightly damp spot, or if you've got a garden pond, it'll go next to the pond. Um, and that will bring in not just the bees, but really great for the late butterflies, if you've seen a few of those out in your garden at this time of year. Um, we have just moving down a little bit we've got one of the salvias so a great late season end of summer sort of flowering plant it'll go right up until we get perhaps the frost we've got some achillea so that's a lovely cottage garden flower very open flower head for that one so you'll also get things like hoverflies landing on there and being able to get to the pollen and the nectar um, so we've got what's called viburnum tinus or loristinus that's a great hedging plant actually which will also flower 
and I think we often think about pollinator flowers being, you know, a sort of lovely border, you know, flowers, but actually hedging and trees actually are really important as well we often sort of forget that they have a role to play and of course if you plant a lovely garden tree maybe an ornamental apple you know like a nice crab apple and now's a fantastic time of year for planting um, trees um, that's going to sort of tick a lot of boxes you're going to have the blossom in the spring that's going to support a lot of different pollinating insects and then you get to enjoy something later on at this time of year yay <laughs> and I can see you've got some yeah, yeah, so again, a good flower for this time of year. It's about really trying to have a little look around your garden, thinking, have I lost all the colour and the interest? In, you know, if I got a bit of a gap to fill here? Because with wild bees, actually, they're staying active later in the season. Some of the bumblebee species are now what's called winter active, you know, that their nests are still staying present through the winter. So our gardens can really be a, a repository for, you know, a nectar and pollen. Uh, so don't think, right, we all go to bed, at, you know, come October, that's it. We, we can all close up shop. It's really important to keep things going. And of course we get to enjoy them. So things like winter honeysuckle, maybe some hellebores will take us through. And of course there's bulbs. Um, if you can get out to your garden centre and get some crocus bulbs, get those in and they'll be flowering really early on and be a really good pollen source. So, yeah, some good stuff. I've got a little challenge for you, actually. Ooh, what's this? It looks a bit so, like a bird box. Right, OK. You were spot on. This is yeah. a bird box. Yeah. And it's the type that's got a full front with a hole in the top. Mm-hmm. My challenge to you is, can you tell me who lives in a house like this? Who lives in a house like that? Maybe a bumblebee? <gasps> Spot on, you're the first person that's got that right today. Probably will sit up for it. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm just going to open the front here. Don't yeah. worry, there's nobody actually live in here. But oh. I've got a little picture of a tree bumblebee nest at the back. So tree bumblebees are one of the new species of bumblebee to Britain. They're very distinctive because, first of all, they have a habit of nesting quite high up in cavities in trees, but also they will use your bird boxes. They'll also use little holes if you've got them in the eaves or in your loft space. They're like a honeybee in that they're a social bee, is a bumblebee, so they'll create a nest, but smaller than honeybees, maybe just two or three hundred individuals at tops. And then the tree bumblebee, look out for this in your gardens because it's almost got like a traffic light of colours. So it's the top of its back is bright ginger, and then its middle section is black and then its bum is white. So yeah, they're really distinctive. It's a lovely one. So yeah, you might put a bird box up thinking you're gonna encourage some blue tits or something, but don't be surprised if you get a different visitor, the tree bumblebee. And have you got any central heating in that for the bees? Oh yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Dr. Paul John Vag, and I'm the owner of Be Natural. We just got a lovely waft of all these lovely scents, and we just wondered what you're doing here at the National Honey Show. We're here with all our natural handmade organic products, so with all our scented candles, bar salts, soaps. Yeah, we've pretty much everything here, and it smells lovely. Oh, it really does. And are you a beekeeper yourself? I am. Yeah. Um, so I currently keep 112 hives, which is quite a lot. I'm looking to up that a little bit next year, not all in London mm. mostly out of London now there's too many beehives yeah, absolutely. in London uh, but yeah, so very much into beekeeping bee farmer I, I, I worked in the NHS for years as a virologist I worked in uh, HIV um, and I have sappho so I don't have cartilage so my bones are all bone on bone so you, my, where the joints are they try and repair themselves so I get osteophytes in all my joints so they have to have them removed from my feet, knees, this. So I went to an association, I shan't say which one, and asked to become a beekeeper, and they turned me away flat and said, no way you can become a beekeeper because of your disability. Uh, went to the LBKA, and they said, well, you might find it difficult, but you can do the course. And did the course, took on a, once I passed my B-Basic, took on a student to do all the lifting for me, and, you know, now we have 112 hives and... There's 17 students to do all the, wow, all the lifting. Amazing. So we teach for free every week as well. We do community teaching. Yeah. We do, do a charge course for, for people who want to get into beekeeping you know, straight away and do a weekend course. But if you want to do the whole year season with us, you can do a whole year with us for nothing and then we'll put you through your B-Basics the following year. So that's the community side. So we have... People from local groups, garden, in, you know, like garden groups and associate square associations and things like that. Mm. Allotments who come and study with us for a year, do their B basics, and then go back to you know where they are, but still stay part of our group as well for the for the support. So who makes the products? Most of my products are made from my own business, but we support charities. Be natural has ever since it was formed has been a charity-based business. So out of all our products, money goes back into the community. So that goes to things like residential care homes, supporting employment for blind and disabled people. Then we do things like our Christmas run. So on Christmas Day, we go out to children's care homes, residential care homes, uh, hospices. We make sure everybody gets a Christmas present. It's only a cheap Christmas present, only a two, three pound Christmas present. But when the family's at home having fun and they can't come and see the person that day, that kind of makes a lot of difference yeah. and certainly for kids who don't get anything so yeah I really enjoy that aspect it's, the charity side is very very important lovely well I'm just going to have a little look what we've got um, over there and we'll just we'll tell everyone we've got some natural wax melts I also met your partner in crime once Jane long long time ago with a very good friend of mine called Gordon Kay who's passed away now, but but uh, Gordon and I have been friends since I was in my very, very early 20s. can't remember where it was, but I just remember meeting Jane very briefly while I was with Gordon somewhere. So, yeah. That's wonderful. Maybe we should get her a little gift. What do you think she'd like? Soap, organic soap. 
Oh, that is so nice. What do you think of the show and have you been before? So, yeah, we've been coming quite a few years um, since 2013. This year, it's not... I mean, it's very well set out. There's a lot of very good stalls here. Obviously, it's not as busy as it normally is because there's no international classes. And obviously, a lot of people haven't travelled from Ireland and other places that would normally be here. But it's great to be back, actually, so... It's great to be back. It's great to see beekeepers I haven't seen since 2019. And I think next year will be a really big event. We've just seen the National Bee Unit. The National Bee Unit are part of DEFRA. Um, so they're in charge of the welfare of bees and disease and how many beekeepers there are in the country. And they've um, been telling us all, all about how beekeepers can register themselves on their website so they know how many beekeepers they've got in the country. And it's really important because all of the livestock, you have to register, but bees, you don't actually have to register. So it's really hard for them to sort of keep an eye on disease and what's happening, um, you know, Asian hornet sightings and all that sort of thing if, if beekeepers aren't registering. So we're saying on behalf of National Bee unit get yourself registered and they've got loads of interesting courses and lots of interesting information about disease on their website oh look at this it looks like a big bee bedspread with all different things that are going on in the brood and we've got a queen cell we've got all these the different stages of the larva and they've all been hand stitched rather beautiful so what's your name? Ellen. So Ellen, can you tell us about yourself and what you're doing at the Honey Show today? So I work at the National Botanic Garden of Wales, so I'm a placement student there. We're based in Carmarthen, South Wales. It's quite an extensive grounds with um, the biggest single-span glass house in the world, I think, which is home to different endangered species. We're also doing a lot of conservation and research work to do with um, pollinators, different rare plants. So we have brought this brood frame to show, to scale, what the kind of brood looks like in a hive. And it's a patchwork quilt. Yeah, made by our stitching team. So it took over a year to make, and there's lots of little details the more you look at it. So we have some, like, drone cells, brood cells, and then you've got the different cells with the different types of pollen grain in, so they each represent different plant species. So you've got the worker bees, and then underneath here is a queen bee. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And then, yeah, some varroa mites. Oh, scary. Yeah, that's to scale what it would be like if it was on a person. Oh, God. So quite big. So it's about the size of a dinner plate on a person. And you've got a varroa mite in a cell there as well, haven't you? Basically, we have a stitching team that come in every week to the National Planet Garden, and then they they do, like, exhibitions. So at the moment, there's one going on to do with lichens, which is opening soon. So they're stitching different lichen species. So this was one of their projects. I'm not sure what sparked it, but, I mean, it's pretty pretty impressive. Amazing, yeah. (laughs) other side of the judging and now we can see all the wax crafts and they do look rather magical don't they i can see um, a sort of wax gypsy caravan i can even see some wax flowers they look so delicate Sean Lawson. I'm a project manager for Bees for Development. I've been working with them for about two, three years. And my sort of background was I used to live in Rwanda, working in Rwanda, where I set up a social enterprise selling bee products, candles, honey, and so on. But moved back to the UK, wanted to sort of work for a beekeeping charity doing sustainable development, and 
piece of development was a perfect fit for me, really. <laughs> oh, look at you. I can see you've got like a, a bark, a hive made out of bark. Can yeah. you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so this hive is it's a bark hive from Zambia. Uh, it comes from sort of Miombo forests, which are great, amazing areas for bees, for beekeeping. The bark is sort of taken off the outside of a tree while it's wet. It's then sort of folded around and pegged through with these wooden pegs that kind of keep it together. And on the other end, you've got a lovely woven, can't quite see it, there's a lovely woven lid. So with a horizontal hive like this, which most beekeepers in Africa will use, and the reason they use hives like this is because they're cheaply made and really accessible for everyone to start beekeeping. You know, here in the UK, beekeeping's a hobby. Uh, it's something which costs quite a lot of money to get into, you know, all the hives and equipment. Beekeepers in Africa, all you need is really just some skills and some knowledge to learn, which is what our partners teach, and they're able to make a hive like this. Just like you see here, the beekeeper will hang their hives in a tree. They'll be able to naturally catch the wild swarms which come along. They'll inhabit the hive. And then at some point, six months later, a beekeeper will come and we'll be able to harvest the honeycomb out of this hive. They're able to get everything. They get the comb, they get the honey. The honey obviously will go into jars for, for consumption and the beeswax maybe in, quite frankly, in many of the products you see here today, you know, candles and all sorts. In fact, we've got Zambian beeswax candles there. So this, this beeswax candle would have come from a hive just like this, exactly like this. Yeah. When we had, we were lucky enough to get Nicola onto the podcast, and um, she was telling that, us that the beekeepers just taken an elbow of honey. So I just wanted to sort of yeah. measure where that is. So I'm putting my elbow at the end, so they get the honey out. Exactly. This end. So there's two yeah. entrances. There's an entrance for the bees yeah. and an entrance for the beekeeper. Wow, so and bees like to put their colony in the front of the hive, and then they put their honey at the back because then they can defend the honey with their colony. Yeah. And so the beekeeper is able to take advantage of that, open up the back and then come in and, and get just the honey. And when they start to get to the combs where you see brood and young baby bees in the colony, that's when you stop. Um, and how yeah. long does, um, would a hive last um, in the weather conditions there? How, how long would this be in place? I'd probably say three to five years, but that doesn't actually matter when they're so easy and cheap to make. So they don't last as long as, you know, a cedar wooden hive that we might have here in the UK, but they also cost a fraction. <laughs> the great thing is, is that because they're so cheap, beekeepers can make so many you know and they can put them around the forest and they don't have to worry about whether this one's colonized or that one's colonized it's sort of putting more and more sort of eggs in their basket as it were you know and able to put the hives here there everywhere and then just come along and if they're colonized great take the honey if they're not doesn't matter next year you'll come back so it's just much less risk much less risk averse whereas if you spend a lot of money on a single hive and you've got it somewhere you're so desperate to have that colonized aren't you but in Zambia, they just don't have to worry about that at all. And all these um, hives, like, safe in the places that they put them? Well, being high up in the tree, yes, they're away from predators. The biggest one being ants in Africa, actually. You know, ants can climb up from a blade of grass up onto a hive, and they'll just decimate a hive, take the honey. And African bees are very, very flighty. If there's anything that comes to disturb them, they won't want to stick around. So something like ants straight away, honey badgers especially in many parts of Africa, always up in a tree. It's also where you catch bees in a tree. I mean, the great thing about local beekeeping in Africa is that wherever you are, you just use the resources you have to hand. So where I used to live in Rwanda, people would weave bamboo hives. And so they'd split bamboo and then it would get woven into like a, a basket. I mean, essentially a basket. Not much different from the woven skeps we have from the store here in the UK. 
and that's just what people have to hand. And then they'll cover it in cow manure, which gets dried in the sun, and then banana bark on the outside. It's everything which is just cheap, accessible to hand. In Miombo Forest, where they have bark, this is what they make. So, you know, a beekeeper doesn't even have to transport this hive anywhere. He'll make it in situ in the forest and then hoist it up. So local materials are absolutely the best thing for people wanting to start beekeeping. <laughs> what's it like to be at the National Honey Show and, and what sort of reaction are you getting from people walking by? Well, we've been coming for a few years now. I mean, it's absolutely great. To be honest, these are our people, you know, beekeepers... This is our target audience, people who we want to show how beekeeping can be such a useful tool to help people in poverty. So it's just brilliant to be here. Yeah, really, sorry, it's really exciting. It's difficult to say. <laughs> We've been let into the judging enclosure now, so we're going around looking at the... Uh, we're having a close-up view of the beeswax caravan and all the lovely little candles. Oh, there's a sheep. Oh, these are all. There's even beeswax wraps. Oh, and I wonder how they're judged, how they can wrap something up nicely. <laughs> now, I wish Jane was here. I wonder if we'd win, because these wax candles are very shiny and very, very good. But I, th I think ours are quite good. Over here is the honey cake, it must be. Look. Now, Jane, I think she'd just have to stick a finger in one of these, wouldn't she? Do you think she'd pinch one? We'd be arrested. Ooh, honey biscuits, honey goo. To be judged here, we've got a brew frame made of Lego. A natural way to encourage the bees to fill a honey jar with comb for trunk honey. So you get some bees to sort of live in there and, and fill it with honeycomb and, and make honey in the, in the jars, ready-made. Oh, now there's a model of a beekeeper here. I think it's some sort of musical instrument or, oh no, it's got a wind-up, it says turn. I'm going to turn it. Let's see what happens. Oh, look, he's smoking. Smoking his bees and he's, he can pick a frame up with one hand. Very well done. Oh, he's nodding. I wonder if he's got EFB. Have a look at this, honey. So we're looking at all the jars and they're just all different colours, all, all in different rows. The jars are all on different shelves and there's comb in some of the honey and some of the jars. But the colours just stand out. You know, what is honey coloured? Well, it's about 50 different varieties and shades of honey. It's just amazing. The set honey, honeycomb. It's making me quite hungry though and I just wish I could just stick my finger in one of the jars. We're getting to know everybody at the Honey Show now. We've just run into Paul again from Be Natural, and he's actually won a second prize for his unusual bottle. Uh, at the, the world, world, so yeah. oh, wow. it's, a, it's a globe. But... So where did you find that jar? I searched it out and used it. Did you? I, I found it from a company, oddly enough, called Unusual Bottles. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. You get what you ask for when you put the term in Google. <laughs> yes, I'm very pleased with that. Who are you and how did you get to the Honey Show? So we're Begon and uh, we are a live honeybee and comb removal service. Uh, we specialise in removing honeycomb from buildings and keeping the bees safe. So we don't spray bees, we just remove them and remove the building and do, we do all the building work, all the reinstatement work as well. So we put all the building back together again. We'd basically do what beekeepers don't do. They'll get a swarm out of a tree, 
but they won't get a swarm you know that's 12 feet in a roof or something like that that's really hard to get to so that's what we do and then we we rehome the bees afterwards as well that's great and what's the weirdest place that you've ever found any bees we had one in a roof where they'd been there for so long that the honey had actually started dripping through the ceiling of the person's kitchen Onto their, yeah, and... Onto um, their toast. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And how long did it take you to get the, the bees out of there? Uh, it normally takes up to a week, but a yeah. couple of days, yeah. So we actually take it out the first day, we leave them overnight to try and get all the bees into the box, and then we'll come back the next day and then take them from there. But then if there's loads of building repairs to do, it can take, you know, a week, maybe a couple of weeks to do. But I suppose yeah. most people who contact you are bee-friendly people, aren't yeah. they? Because they don't so, want the bees to be harmed. So yeah, must we, be, we do get... must be okay about yeah. We do get colonies that we go and visit uh, where they'll be sprayed first and then we'll go there and obviously it hasn't worked because even if you spray the bees, you'll still get uh, this thing called foraging bees that come and wasps and moth and and stuff like that that come and feed off the honey. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and then obviously they've still got another problem of just a load of wasps and stuff so that the problem's not solved because all the honeycomb's still in there even if you spray them. And then they end up calling us like afterwards when they should have called us in the first place because we could have saved the bees' life. We still end up have to you know, cut out all the, open all the boxy and remove all the honeycomb as well. So amazing. Yeah. And just yeah. one more question: What's the biggest one that you've ever had? Ooh, probably had one go 13 meters down a chimney before. Yeah, probably up, up to 50,000 bees. Yeah. We we also have um, a YouTube channel called Bee Gone as well. So. If, if you want to, you're interested in learning about, you know, how big they get and yeah. some of the biggest, yeah, we, we show videos in there as well. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and then we saw Paula Carnell, the infamous naturopathic beekeeper. Somebody else in uh, lunch, so um, yeah, nice oh. to see you. Oh, God, so nice to see you. Are you having a good time? Yes, yeah. Were you here for this morning's lectures? Well, no, one? because we've been we've just been going round, sort of seeing. Because oh. this is our first time at the at the show, so we're going to watch the lectures online because you can download oh, right. them all. Yeah. So that's what we're going to yeah. do. But what did you enjoy? Well, um, Torben Schiffer. It's about what I've been doing. It's naturopathic beekeeping. And he had some really interesting research about hives and how much honey bees consume depending on the insulation of the hive. These good Germans, they really know their bees. But he was talking about the concentration of bees and you know I really don't like this bringing in bee colonies and everyone says oh I want to save the bees and then they have a hive and they bring in some bees which is another 50,000 hungry mouse this was all about the concentration of bees that is sustainable in any environment and particularly when you've got all the native bees so basically the native bumblebees and solitary bees are just being starved but nobody's noticing because we're noticing you know because we're thinking about the bees so he was saying in Berlin, if they allowed a three-kilometre radius around each protected colony of wild bees, so bumblebees, and they've marked where all these bumblebees are around Berlin, basically you've got too many of the honeybees, so you yeah. just couldn't have any more. So it was really interesting because Real they are the main then. pollinators yeah. and we don't have enough food for them. So, yeah, it was brilliant. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the last 
place, to be quite honest, that I thought you'd have that kind of conversation, especially at the beginning, and about how much honey we're taking, and he's saying honey should be higher valued, which, of course, we all know. I was like, wow, I'm with my tribe. I thought I was the odd one out here, but... And then I've been talking to bee farmers, and, yeah, so having this great debate about how do we make honey sustainable and profitable for the bee farmers and it's how do we move forward minimizing or even completely reducing chemical use and not feeding bee sugar and you know the purest view which I'd like to do but then we have to have those stages and how do we do that and it all comes down to education because when the public understand what really happens in hives they're quite shocked and they don't really want that and when they know that honey when it isn't really honey but they're being sold it as honey you know it's just all these things have got to come up so yeah so it's good yeah well i'll be definitely tuning in online to those fantastic day at the National Honey Show meeting old friends and new friends and beekeepers of all sorts and wax candles and jars of honey and many many wonderful specimens (laughs) 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 and I'll call you is written and created by Esther Coles and Jane Horrocks. It is produced by Claire Broughton, Andy Goddard and John Wakefield and partly recorded at the Hives on my allotment near Crouch End in London. Our title music is Sweet Nothing by Amy May Ellis and Will Cookson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Queen Bees Pod for pictures and videos from the Hive. Queen Bees is a hat-trick podcast. Feels so good just to have you around